welcome back to all of you. This is Dr. Jim Schrader, and uh, we're back once again for the 36th episode of Living a Whole Christian Life. So we've entered into the social dimension, into the social world, the social rooms of our home. And this week, we're going to talk about one of the most seminal studies in the history of this country and probably of the world. So in 1985, Dr. Vincent Felite was the chief of Kaiser Permanente's Department of Preventative Medicine. And he had this conundrum that he had been facing over the course of a five-year program at the obesity clinic. Question was, why were half of the participants in this obesity clinic every year at least dropping out? And the strange thing about this was that they were dropping out even after they were often successful in losing weight. So this kind of ensued, again, one of the most famous studies in the history of the world. And it started with about 17,000 people who were part of this program. And as they went through the study and they started doing a huge kind of amount of research, looking at the early lives of these people and kind of the, the timing of when they started to increase in weight but eventually become obese, they became aware of something that was really striking and something that really the lead author said you know, later on that he had no idea that it would lead to the prevalence and just ultimately the connections that would later form what was called ACEs. And so by the, when I speak of ACEs here, what I'm talking about is ACEs is an abbreviation or an acronym for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And the initial stunning thing they found and looking at this initial group of 17,000 people, and this has been since replicated many, many times over, was that the reality for those who not just were obese, but many people in general, is that adverse childhood experiences are actually very common. The reality is that on average, two out of three people have at least one ACE, and we'll define this in a second, what that means to have an adverse childhood experience, and more than 20% have three or more. And what they also found was that it didn't really matter seemingly what ethnicity or class, even middle class, upper class you came from, that ACEs were still very common across all people. The third thing, and this is the kind of link that they really discovered how much ACEs related to just overall development, was that they were linked to almost every major chronic illness we find in adulthood and every major social problem um, that we consider here in the U.S. and across the country. And so again, to define ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, it includes things like physical and emotional abuse and neglect, sexual abuse, parent divorce and incarceration, the witnessing of domestic violence and long-term substance abuse, homelessness, and a few other related variables. The revelation that the study kind of kicked off and has since been replicated, and I think that probably many of you listening have heard about ACEs, even if you're not in the field of psychology, was that the revelation was that many, many people use things like food or drugs or sex or excessive work or thrill-seeking. They use it repeatedly to cope with the adverse childhood experiences they had once in adulthood. And the reality is interesting is that many of these people, when interviewed, look at this in many ways as adaptive. And it's understandable that they've learned how to use certain substances to offset what was a really difficult situation in childhood, even as they get older into adulthood, even into retirement for many people. And the finding is that, and this is what's, I think, quite stunning when you look at the connection, is that compared to people with zero ACEs. So again, one ACE means that you've experienced one of those categories I named before, 
multiple aces indicates that maybe you've experienced both, let's say, physical abuse and homelessness or whatever. When you look at people who have zero aces compared to those with four aces, there is one, and we're going to use a number of examples here, a 240% greater risk of hepatitis, a 390% more likely situation to have chronic pulmonary disease, and a 240% higher risk of STD. And this was found in in kind of a follow-up, like 50,000 group sample. But it, it gets even more. There's even more connections here to adverse childhood experiences because as adults, if the higher number of ACEs that you've had, at least four or more, you're twice as likely to smoke. You're 12 times more likely to attempt suicide. You're seven times more likely to be alcoholic. And you're 10 times more likely to have used street drugs. In addition, you're also more likely to be violent, to have increased divorce rates, to actually break more bones, and even be absent from work. And the variables continue there. And ultimately, what the finding has been, and I think that, you know, as the studies have grown, what we've seen is that it teaches us such an critically important thing. And this relates to the social dimension and and so much about our teaching and our Christian faith that from what happens to us from a young age, it literally socially, those experiences change the brain at times, even, you know, impairing the brain and altering it forever based on our interactions with others or our witnessing of other things happening. And it also can create a chronic state of inflammation in our body that carries into adulthood. And so that for those who haven't experienced a lot of ACEs, they're able, let's say, to be anxious at times or angry, but then return kind of to a normal baseline. But for many who've experienced especially a chronic or high rate of ACEs throughout their young life, it's very difficult to kind of return to that baseline without still feeling some level of anxiety or anger or or whatever strong emotion it is. And so this was the stunning finding. This was something that, you know, came out, let's say, 30 or 40 years ago. And really, the the idea simply is, and we've said this throughout this simply living a whole Christian life, is that everything affects everything. You know, our interactions with each other affect the physicality of not just at that moment where you feel kind of your muscles are tightening or your heart speeding up, but the interactions that we have with other people can affect them later on, decades, decades later in their lives. And I think it just speaks to this idea of how these dimensions, the social dimension, the physical dimension, and of course, the psychological dimension that we'll talk more about, cross over so dramatically. You know, God put a premium on our social interactions, and God really taught us in many ways how important they are. But, you know, it's not just bad news when it comes to this. And I think what's really, really critical to note is that when people experience adults, when kids experience adults, or we all experience each other in a caring, responsive, supportive way, unlike the ACEs, and unlike all the physical symptoms and physical conditions that are connected to it, positive, supporting, empathetic, loving relationships do the opposite. They buffer us against all sorts of stress. They actually improve brain functioning. They help increase the capacity of someone to handle emotionally difficult situations, or critically think through challenging scenarios. One of the most robust findings in the world of psychology is that social support itself decreases the likelihood of depression, decreases the likelihood of suicidality. And even for youth, even for people who have difficult scenarios with their family or friends, it might be a coach, or it might be 
someone who steps in in a mentorship role. You know, it might be a teacher. Wherever you're coming from out there, I think that this is one of the most important things for us to remember is that we never know the impact that we will have on another human being, but we can be assured that we always have that potential for an impact because God created this design that our interactions with people, even the youngest of people, even the oldest of people, literally bear a footprint in many ways, not just their soul and their brain and all aspects of their being. And all of this brings us back to the most famous social Bible verse that we talked about last time, which is that verse, Matthew seven twelve, do unto others whatever you would have them do unto you. This is all the law. This is all the prophets. And as we look deeper into the science behind this idea, we understand why God said, this is the law, this is the prophets, why Jesus said, the way you treat others is so critical as much as anything else, right? The two most important commandments in the Bible are love me as God above all things and treat others as you would have them treated, love, right? As you would have them love you. And once again, science really vindicates, science really explains why this teaching is so critical to our Christian faith why this teaching really is such an important piece of whatever we do, why we really have to strive to do better in this area. And I I do want to kind of make a point here. You know, throughout this entire podcast, I've talked about the idea of opportunity, that everything here is an opportunity. From the earliest framework of addressing our pride and addressing our anxiety in a healthy way, you know, to the way that we eat, to the way that we sleep, it's all an opportunity. And although I want to emphasize there is incredible opportunity here to be an agent of good for another person, I do think this is the one point where I really am going to use the other O word and say it's also an obligation. I know that if you're listening out there, you may have experienced ACEs yourself, and this may be hitting home and even in a difficult way. Or maybe you've been the perpetrator of situations of abuse or neglect or whatever. And the idea here is not inducing guilt, but I think just recognizing the critical importance of wherever you're at in this conversation, we do have an obligation to each other, right? We do have an obligation to take care of our brothers and sisters, to really think about the idea of empathy. We talked last week about the sense of there's really three core aspects of the social dimension that is the framework, right? The first is that I have empathy, that I really try to put myself in the other person's shoes. And even if I'm angry and I'm frustrated, it's been a long day and it's horrible and I hate where I'm at, I still owe it to that other person to make sure that I'm considering also what they need to and what the basic rights that they have. And in being empathetic, though, I can it's not just having empathy, but it's being responsive to the other person too, to making sure that whatever I do, that I provide for them in the way that I would want to be provided to. And of course, the third thing we talked about last week was the idea that from both of these situations, we ourselves have to learn and grow. And so if we've made mistakes. That's something that we certainly can't change, but there have been many, many critical situations and moving situations where people have acknowledged mistakes that they've made in the social dimension and aspire to do much more. Beyond that all-time most famous Bible verse of Matthew 7, 12, there's a second, a little bit lesser known, but certainly widely recognized verse that says, and this is Matthew 25, 40, truly I say to you, to the extent you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did it for me. And I love that verse. And I think however you interpret the idea of least of brothers and sisters, least of age, of course, we're talking about our children, 
least of income or least of status. It doesn't matter how you interpret that, but what it really speaks of is that deep sense of not just our corporal works of mercy, but that deep sense of connection of just human beings that we need to have. And so when we aspire in this world, in this social dimension, when we aspire beyond our own frustrations and our own self-absorbed nature, what we find is that there is incredible richness here inherent in God's design. But I think what the ACES study really showed was that with incredible opportunity comes incredible obligation, obligation to keep and make sure that others are taken care of. Because if they aren't, it has a dramatic impact on all of us for the rest of our lives. So the take-home message here as we think about this idea, I want to, I do want to emphasize that people are resilient. You know, they, they found throughout these studies that although ACEs and that experience is really difficult, people are surprisingly resilient. Of course, that doesn't justify us ever doing anything that doesn't truly honor the golden rule for another person, but it does give us hope. And it's hope for those of you listening out there who've experienced a lot of adverse childhood or even adult experiences or who have been on the other side of that, that people are resilient, but they need each other. We need each other. We need resources. We need holiness with a WH to be resilient. In fact, we have found that those who are most resilient as we go through this whole series on holiness with a WH are the ones that really seek out all other aspects of God's design and the accordance with the way God wants us to live as a means of counteracting negative experiences they've had. So holiness with a WH builds us and the grace of God builds resilience in us, but we have to seek that out. The second thing is, again, what we do to others can literally become programmed into them and not just now, but for the rest of their life. So before we ever take another step, before we ever lash out or act towards others in ways that doesn't honor the golden rule, we have to remember this literally can become part of the fabric of their, their, their tissue their neurology, their soul in many ways. And so we have to take that into account. I want to end with a really neat story that actually came to me just uh, the day before. I was at what was probably almost the 60th Hagedorn reunion. And it's every Sunday before Labor Day, we go to the Hagedorn reunion. Unfortunately, COVID had canceled the last two, but we were back this past year or this year. And Oliver and Clara Hagedorn were my great-grandparents who lived in a small homestead near Troy, Indiana. It's this beautiful area of Perry County, which I think is the most the prettiest county in Indiana, these rolling hills and lakes and waterways. And there's a, um, a homestead they have. In fact, the, the home itself is still there. But we go back to this three-acre lake with a shelter house every year, and we celebrate their lineage. And on the way home, when I arrived, actually, my mom passed along an article that there is one last surviving first cousin of my great-grandfather, Oliver. And his name is Hubert Hagedorn. And Hubert married Eulalie, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, 75 years ago. And today, both Hubert and Eulalie are living. In fact, they are 99 and 93 years old. And they raised seven kids on a farm, really, really, again, hardworking Germans, constantly doing all sorts of things. And their kids have since grown. Of course, they have their own kids and grandkids. And and recently, they all came back to celebrate this golden, I don't even know what the 75th anniversary is, but whatever it is, it's remarkable, this um, brilliant golden anniversary. 
And they asked Eulalie and Hubert to talk about, everybody wants to know if you've been married for 75 years and, and things seem to be happy, even though, of course, no marriage and no life and no family is perfect. But if things seem to be happy still, people always want to know what's the secret, right? What's the secret to not just lasting that long, but seemingly lasting in love? and in faith and in that way. And it was really interesting. I think Eulalie had talked about the idea that in love and faith, they really, it was always the sense that they had an intent towards those two things. And um, they, you know, apparently prayed the rosary every morning and had prayers for family and friends every morning before the day started as part of their routine. But it was interesting. And, and as we speak about this social dimension today, Hubert was asked, what was the secret for you? And as the quote goes, he said, you know what? It really was just one thing. It was follow the golden rule. Treat each other like you want to be treated. Now, of course, I think many of us listening think, well, I know it was probably a little bit more than that. But you know what? If that is the law and that is the prophets, then certainly like Hubert and like Eulalie, for those of us looking to have a long life, not a life without challenges, but a life full of great, great meaning, where else would we start? Where else would we start but to treat others, to love others as we would want to be treated and loved? And I think, you know, whether it's science, whether it's theology, we all find ourselves back at the same point. This social dimension is not just its own dimension. It's a dimension that permeates into everything else, every other aspect of our lives. And what more would we want our legacy to be that even if we've made mistakes, even if we've done things at times or experienced things at times that we didn't want to experience or to have done, what a great legacy to say, like Hubert. You know what? At the end of the day, it was about the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. This is Jim Schrader. Be holy, be holy.